All right, welcome to a new episode of Cali Claptrap. Today I have on John Thorne. John is the author of The Essential Wrapped in Plastic, Pathways to Twin Peaks. Welcome to the podcast, John. Uh, it's great to be with you. Thanks for, for having me. Yeah, thanks. So my idea of having John on was um, a big fan of Twin Peaks and of John's work. And I was just wanting someone to have a conversation with to try to understand what happened at the ending of season three, parts 17 and 18. Um, I went back to kind of look at it again last night. And obviously, uh, Cooper's What Years It has been haunting, with, haunting me ever since I first watched it. So I was hoping to have John on and we could just have a conversation about what his version of possibly what could happen. And with that, I just kind of want to pass uh, the mic on to you, John, and see if you can help the, the viewers of Twin Peaks try to best guess what is going on inside uh, Mr. Lynch's mind. Well, uh, I certainly don't profess to be an expert in that regard by any means. Uh, I do think, however, it is valuable to, um, to look at the work that Lynch has done uh, throughout his career to sort of give you some guideposts to help you figure out uh, his approach to the work in, in Twin Peaks season three. Uh, I call it the return, but people call it season three, but we all know we're talking about the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, and I have done that. I've certainly, you know, looked really closely at uh, Lynch's works from Eraserhead all the way through to Inland Empire, which was the last major work before uh, the new Twin Peaks. Um, and just to get, <clears throat> just to get an idea of, of how he's, uh, yeah, he approaches his art. Uh, so, uh, um, you know, I mean, part 17 and part 18, <laughs> it's kind of hard to talk about them without talking a little bit about what led up to them. Uh, right. And uh, I mean, you'd almost have to go as far back without getting into too much detail. You almost have to go as far back to the original series. Um, and I think if I guess if they're your your listeners are familiar with Twin Peaks, they probably know a lot of this already. But just just as sort of a base, um, you know, at the end of the original series, Dale Cooper was essentially trapped in the Red Room, which was sometimes called the Black Lodge. But part of him came out, which was his evil half, and uh, was loose in the world, and that's how the series ended. And, and so the, the new series begins with the possibility that maybe Cooper would um, leave uh, and return, leave the Red Room and return to the real world. Um, <clears throat> but for 25 years, his evil half has been out there amassing power and, and uh, you know, he's got his own schemes in mind. Um, so, so you've got all that sort of as a backstory. Um, mm -hmm. And you see in um, early on in season three, I think it's part two, in fact, where Cooper uh, has a, what looks like um, an opening uh, to get out of the Red Room. But it's all very confusing what happens in part two. There is, there's, there's barriers that seem to hold him back. There seems to be, um, <clears throat> he seems to perceive multiple Red Rooms overlapping one another. And at a certain point, uh, he is sort of thrown out of the Red Room by what looks to be like an evil doppelganger of this uh, other entity called the Arm which we can mm -hmm. get into, but let's, let's not worry about that right now. <laughs> he gets, yeah. What seems to be happen, happen there is that he gets, <clears throat> he gets thrown out and then he gets rerouted through various 
places uh, until eventually he is, um, he finds this pathway through an electric socket and uh, is deposited into what we assume is the real world. But, but that Cooper that we see is, um, seems to just be sort of a blank slate. Uh, he doesn't really have any memory or any uh, awareness of uh, who he was or what, even what the world around him is. He's completely, uh, he's, he's sort of com completely fresh and, and new to everything. Uh, and almost and so he, helpless in some regard. I'm sorry, say again? And almost helpless in some regard, as yeah. Dougie, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, Dougie. I mean, he relies on everyone else to sort of guide him around and, and tell him what to do. So, yeah, he, he's, he's at that point, we often refer to him as Dougie because he took on uh, the persona, apparently, of this other uh, being uh, that looked exactly like Cooper called Dougie Jones. Uh, there's mm -hmm. a lot. There's a lot going on here. Uh, and, yeah. and, you know, we could go deep into all of it. But anyway, I think there, I think so. So you have all that happening. And then let's jump ahead to where you want to be now is part 17. And part 17 um, seems to be the culmination of this story that's been building for so many years that uh, the evil Cooper is, is there and inside him is this entity called Bob, which who, you know, essentially was the, the main antagonist in the original show, uh, essentially the demon that possessed Leland Palmer and killed Laura Palmer and all of that that confrontation happens there's a you know, it seems that bob is defeated and it seems that the evil half is finally defeated and that cooper is triumphant and uh you know he uh has you know he has uh finished that part of his journey and is now about to move on to another journey now yeah hey john really, if i could just stop you there when you first saw that what was your reaction when you first saw sort of Bob defeated and like before it kind of moved into this other, I mean, it happened fast, but was, did you have any sort of initial thoughts when you first viewed that scene? Uh, I, um, boy, it's hard to remember. Uh, I yeah. think because I knew that the show, you know, as we were watching that part, part 17, it happens essentially in the middle of the episode. Right. And so I didn't really assume that anything you know, what you see on the screen is not always necessarily what, uh, you know, you know, you can't necessarily take it at face value. And so I wasn't really sure what had happened. Uh, it right. looked like Bob had been defeated. Uh, you know, he'd been, there'd been, there was fire and there was this broken section of the floor. And it, it looked as if, at least the way Lynch portrays it on the surface, as if Bob uh, is, is defeated. And so I kind of thought, okay, that's, what's happened and that um is really just a stepping stone to something else defeating yes. bob was one thing but then something else has to happen and of course i knew you know the actor who played bob was uh, the actor frank silva and i knew since he had passed away so long ago he couldn't reprise that role so i didn't expect bob to necessarily be a major player uh, just a presence and so i mm -hmm. think i think maybe had frank silva lived they might have been able to, um, you know, have a, perhaps a more direct confrontation with that character. But as it was, they could only really um, deal with his presence more than anything else. And I think that's kind of how they got around that. Anyway, uh, yeah. that's a long answer. How did I feel? I don't, you know, I didn't know what was going on. Right, but you <laughs> so knew there really... was more to come because like you said, it was in the middle of something and, and you still had about an hour and a half left to, to find out what, what else was going on. 
I think, I think in that moment, that first viewing moment, we were all, uh, we who were longtime fans of Twin Peaks, and I was one, I was there, and the, you know, I saw it the very first night it premiered in 1990. I, I was sort of anticipating now a reunion between Cooper and the characters from Twin Peaks that he had yet to really meet. And so I was sort of, I think I was on the edge of my seat waiting for some something to, you know, a callback to that original series. Right. And that, is, that did not happen at all. And I think <laughs> that was, I think that was, perhaps that was the, the, the most unsettling aspect of that uh, in that yeah. first viewing is like, okay, wait a minute. I, I don't, so, so what, what happens is, you know, after Bob is defeated, Cooper goes off, he leaves Twin Peaks and he goes off into this other, uh, journey, which I will talk about. Something much more important, I think, is happening uh, in those moments, and that is we see this face of Cooper appear mm -hmm. over the screen, uh, superimposed over the action of of what's happening in the sheriff's station. And what's really important to note about that is that that face is not acknowledged by any of the characters. It's not; they're not aware of that presence of Cooper sort of uh, in between the viewer at home, we watching it and, and what's happening in, you know, in Twin Peaks. There's, yeah. this other, there's this other layer that's been put over it and we see it, but the characters, including Cooper, who's standing there in the, the sheriff's station, he doesn't know that his face is there. And, right. and, and the face says, we live inside a dream which is just perhaps one of the most important uh, themes and concepts of the entire series is this idea of we live inside a dream. Yeah. Uh, and so the face appears and he says that, and then the face eventually fades away. So I don't think you can really talk about Twin Peaks without trying to explain what that was and what it meant to the story so mm -hmm. at this point we're going we can go in different paths and i'll i'll stop here because i know i've dumped a lot and then you know, if you have any questions about that we can talk about it some more and then no i mean move, i think i'm forward. right there with you what what do you think though what what is that to sit what does that signify then is that breaking through sort of a you know sort of to the audience to say what is this not real is this and i know you had sort of a, a speculation that I'm not sure if to put words in your mouth, but is this yeah. all Cooper's dream or, or what, what's, what is it? What do you think that means? Or what do you think Lynch is yeah. doing there? Sure. I think uh, there's a couple of levels going on. And certainly on one level, you could, you could view it as breaking the fourth wall and simply having, you know, the main character addressing the audience and saying, we are, we're living inside a dream. What you're watching is, is fiction. What you're watching is a, you know, um, uh, it, it, it's not real. And, and right. it could be that simple. Uh, but I, I think given the fact that we live inside a dream is a line that has been spoken earlier in the story and in the movie Fire Walk With Me, that mm -hmm. um, there's more going on there. Now, most people, you know, when they hear the word dream, they assume that it means that it's a fantasy that's sort of been created in the subconscious of someone who's asleep, as we all 
have dreams when we sleep. We dream yeah. something that happens and it's not real. It's just happening in our mind. And, and some, actually some very good writers, uh, Tim, Tim Kreider is a, is an excellent essayist. He's been in the New York times and, uh, he, he's, he's written about it and he believes that all of what we've seen is simply a dream of mm -hmm. another character. I, and I have written about that myself, about Firewalk With Me, about you know, thinking parts of Firewalk With Me were Cooper's dream. But I personally found that to be a little bit of a troubling solution. I didn't really like it. It seemed too simple for one thing. You just simply yeah. excusing it all as a dream, saying, well, yeah. he just made it up in his mind. And all of what we've watched so far then is just sort of a figment. And it doesn't have the same value you might think you know you've invested all this time in it and if we're just just relegating it to a dream then in some ways we're diminishing it and so i i had trouble with that uh and so i've gone in to explore a little bit more about you know the origin of that phrase um which you'll hear in part 14, uh, Gordon Cole hears it from in his dream from an actress, the actress Monica Bellucci, where she says, we are like the dreamer who dreams and lives inside the dream. Now, that phrase comes from Hindu mythology, which is something that David Lynch uh, is, um, you know, he's, he adheres to a lot of Hindu philosophy. He follows transcendental meditation and the, um, um, Mahesh, uh, I'm going to get the name wrong. Maharishi, Maharishi Mahesh Yogi, exactly. Yes, and and has and has you know, reiterated some of the ideology that uh, you know that he you know, he's he studied in those other uh, areas, and they're present in the return. And, and if you look at some of the you know, meanings behind that, we live inside a dream. The idea essentially is that we all essentially see the world we want to see and it, and we see each of us sees the world differently than anybody else everybody has a unique viewpoint everyone has their own bias on on how the world is mm -hmm. and and so my take on it at that point was that if you recall way back in part two cooper is in the red room and the red room divides it sort of overlaps itself and i thought well you know at that point part of cooper his mind anyway is staying in the red room and the other part of him went out and became dougie jones mm -hmm. well if his mind that mind is there then he's been watching all of this transpire all this story that we've been watching and he okay. appears at the end like we are watching it, he's watching it too. And, and so mm -hmm. it was my thought was that was just his mind in the red room, basically acknowledging that I'm watching this story unfold and I'm watching it the way I want to see it. And, and essentially we, the viewer have seen the story through Cooper's eyes. We've seen it the way he has seen it. So some of it is skewed according to his own mindset. I know that's kind of complicated, but it's essentially no, like he was you. narrating the story to us, and but he was telling it to us the way he wanted to tell us, which is why so many strange things seem to happen or happen out of order or whatever. It was just Cooper's mind was the filter between the audience and the story. That that was something that I, made me very comfortable, rather than saying it was simply a dream, that it was Cooper's 
mental processing of the story. That's what he meant when he said we live inside a dream. And anyway, just for our listeners too, I want to point out the Blue Rose Magazine issue nine, you had a wonderful essay on, on all of this and, and definitely would recommend sort of the uh, tie-in to the Upanishads. Um, and I yeah. also, you know, when I read that, I was really drawn into also the the image of the white horse that mm -hmm. appears often in, in Twin Peaks and its connection also to this new coming age possibly of, you know, that that might be coming. And anyway, it's just, it, mm -hmm. it, yeah. it's a great read and definitely would highly recommend um, listeners to, to, to purchase that. So, yeah. Um, yeah, so we find him, yeah, at the end. So he, he's viewing this uh, and then he goes to uh, back to the Great Northern Hotel with uh, with Cole and, and right. Diane. Um, and and what, 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 how, what do you think goes on there? <laughs> well, now here's what's going to sound like a contradiction to what I just said. Right. Um, but, but and it, I, you know, it's pretty complicated and you got to watch it really closely. But And, and I think we have to be okay with contradictions because oh, yeah. I, I think in Lynch's world, contradictions are, are okay. And, and, and so to pair them up um, is an okay thing to do. So go ahead. I, I, and I think, I mean, I think you're exactly right. I think for Lynch, this ambiguity, um, it allows for each person to kind of take away what they want or, you know, project onto it, you know, what they will. And um, different people, just like we live inside a dream, just like we all see the world differently, we all see Twin Peaks differently, and everyone has their view of it that makes them comfortable. What I'm proposing here is, and certainly I'm not attempting to explain it, and I'm not attempting to decipher it and say I've, I've cracked the code and I understand it. No, what I'm no. trying to do is using what I know of Lynch and, and the things that he has studied and the things that he has uh, done in his art before this is to try to come to some comfort level with, you know, maybe Lynch was exploring these ideas. That doesn't mean they're all definitive, but he was exploring them. Now, having said all that, at that moment in the sheriff's station, um, Cooper is standing, you know, with Diane. Um, we, we should really say that up until this point, uh, things have been very idealized. Things have been very heightened. Cooper is... Um, Cooper's behaving sort of like a caricature of, uh, you know, he, he's all positivity and he's all uh, um, uh, certain of himself. He's very heroic. And mm -hmm. Diane comes out and she says, Cooper, the one and only. I mean, the dialogue is almost uh, comic booky, uh, yeah. the way they're behaving. And so there's a, there's an element here of unreality going on and, you know, that it, it's not, quite as grounded even you know up you know, the, the series we've seen so far had a groundedness to it despite it being somewhat um eccentric and and, right. and quirky but this part quirky yeah this part here has a has a real exaggerated element to it mm -hmm. and diane is standing there and cooper is addressing everyone in a classic detective uh, story fashion you know he's got the assembled audience and he's telling them what's going to happen and it it just, uh, it strikes me as being very false. Uh, mm -hmm. And it's at that point, now the face is still hovering over all of this. So I would argue the face is perhaps more of the real story than what we're seeing. Mm -hmm. The face is, at this point, it's the face that's really kind of more important because this is what the face, maybe the mind of Cooper wants to see. 
the mind of Cooper is, uh, is, is watching this and, and maybe now starting to imagine various things. Um, but, but critically, Cooper's standing there and the lights all go dark. He's looking at the clock. The clock has stopped or it can't get past a certain time, 2.53. The lights go down and um, it's as if uh, the story has come to an end. Right. And I think you could argue, and I won't go into all the details how and why, but there are some good arguments as to why the story ended there and, and what was happening. Uh, and, but let's just say the story did end, but Cooper decided he needed to keep it going. And so it's at this point that Cooper really becomes, the story would follow the Cooper on screen with Diane and Cole becomes very, very abstract and untethered to any reality really we've seen so far. They, um, they emerge from pure darkness. They were standing in the sheriff's department, but then they emerge from a, an inky black void as if they are being conjured into, be, uh, in, you know, in, into being at that point. Uh, Cooper's wearing his FBI pin. He hadn't been up until that point. Now, that's a minor thing, but not something Lynch would have overlooked. Right. And at that point, um, a lot of crazy stuff happens. Cooper has a key. He opens a door. He meets the Philip Gerard, the one-armed man. They go through various doorways and hallways and, and otherworldly realms until they come to the character Philip Jeffries. And mm -hmm. it's at that point that ostensibly it seems that Cooper is asking Jeffries to send him back in time yeah. so that he can go and save Laura Palmer from being killed. And so that seems to be what we see play out in the rest of 17. I would argue that that is all very, very subjective, that it could be this face of Cooper or this mind of Cooper now saying, I'm gonna push the story in this direction and this is what it's gonna be. And, uh, and so I, I find the whole thing subjective and I, I'm not sure you can, I, I was arguing before that it wasn't a dream, but this part might be. Right. Yeah, I mean, um... I'm not sure there's much to say because, uh, again, with that contradiction, I'm not sure, again, watching it, I'm not sure if Lynch wants you. I mean, obviously, almost every Lynch film you make or you watch, you're never really quite sure what the hell is happening or what he's even intending or if he wants right. you to even make sense of kind of what's happening. But just taking it for its value, he's he then is placed back to, to the night Laura Palmer dies He's walking with her. He leads her away. So it almost seems like the events don't happen. And then she mm -hmm. just disappears. Right. And this is, this is sort of um, just a critical clue to, to indicate maybe he was imagining this short part of the story because she disappears. He, he has intercepted her in 1989. She was mm -hmm. going to walk to the place where she would eventually be murdered. But he intercepts her and leads her away. And as he's leading her away, she screams and disappears. He turns and she's gone. Uh, mm -hmm. And that really is the very end of part 17. Right. Part 18 picks up. Uh, actually, part 18 recaps and shows Cooper again walking with Laura through the woods. She screams and disappears. And if you watch it very, very closely, and I have, and I know I'm an obsessive, but Cooper is standing in the woods and for the briefest second, he is bathed in a red light. A red mm. light shines on his face. He turns and he's in the red room again. He's back mm. in the red room and the one-armed man is there and the one-armed man says, you know, is it future or is it past? And the implication yeah. here is that Cooper never left the red room 
And that's essentially what I was arguing before is, well, I wouldn't say he never left. I do believe part of him left, but his mind stayed in the red room and watched all of this stuff play out. He had two separate selves, neither of which he could control in the, in the real world, Mr. C, the evil half, and Dougie, the good half, doing stuff that he could only watch. Um, and uh, eventually that story between the two of them resolved in the sheriff's station. Uh, and Cooper went off on his little fantasy to save Laura, but ultimately he comes back to the Red Room um, and, and that, I would argue, is, is the face of Cooper that we saw uh, in part 17 was that red room uh, mind that's yeah. still there. And we're back with him now again in part 18, still in the red room. Mm-hmm. Um, but getting back to real quick to what you just said about Lynch, you know, Lynch's films um, are really all about psychological journeys. They're really mm-hmm. more about what's happening in the mind of characters rather than what's happening outside of them. Um, right. The story is about their own anxieties and fears and desires. Uh, and sometimes they take on a literal manifestation. And we have to be careful as to whether we say, is that real or is that just something they're imagining? Yeah. Uh, he's done that throughout all his films. These are, these are characters who imagine things and we see what they're imagining. And as an audience, we sometimes assume, well, if it's on the screen, it must be real. But it isn't necessarily. It is an aspect of that character's mindset. And so it's, the, it's true too of this Twin Peaks that really most of this story is about Cooper's mind and about Cooper mm-hmm. trying to come to terms with who he is, what he's done and what he wants to do. And so I think all of those things are really important to keep in mind when you're watching it. Right. And, and so, but then I guess, you know, I, I know sort of what happens shortly after that, um, where he meets, I think, the arm, and I think he says, this is the story of the little girl who lived down mm-hmm. the lane. Or, and mm-hmm. then Laura whispers something in Cooper's ear, and then she disappears. It, I guess, you know, um, yeah, I, I'm, fine sort of ex- I'm fine sort of accepting the psychological sort of aspect of that, and especially for the audience member to be almost, I think, good art kind of turns it around and makes you kind of question your own things that are going on in your own life and stuff. And I'm fine. I always give Lynch the sort of the benefit of the doubt to sort of mm-hmm. carry me on to the next scene to go, okay, well, well then what? What, what does this mean, right? Right. Um, and so shortly after that, he, he is back sort of where he can transition out of the Red Room and he meets Diane in the forest. Is that correct? That's right. Now, there's, there's, I guess there's a lot of things we, we should really talk about. One is, I, I think we, we can't ignore Mark Frost, who's the co-creator right. of Twin Peaks. And Mark yeah. Frost, uh, you know, is responsible for so much of the, uh, the mythology of Twin Peaks and, you know, the, in, in creating so many of the characters and the relationships. And Mark Frost was involved with this idea of this alternate Laura Palmer, who, who we know in part 18 as Carrie Page. Uh, who, okay. Uh, and so he and Lynch you know, together developed this storyline. Now, I don't know if Lynch followed their original plan. I think personally, and this is strictly a guess, I don't know this from any, you know, I haven't seen any interviews or anything, but knowing what I know of Frost, I think Frost was comfortable with the idea that 
Cooper might really have gone back in time, saved Laura Palmer, and created a, a second reality. So there were two okay. realities. There was one where she died and there was one where she didn't die. And, and mm -hmm. in fact, Philip Jeffries calls one the official version and one the unofficial version. And again, for Frost, and I think Frost's intent, uh, I'm speaking for him and I really honestly don't know, this is a guess, yeah. is no that, that to Cooper, you know, he did save Laura, uh, but, uh, you know, she still died in one reality. It's just another one where she didn't. And Cooper is able to cross into that parallel reality. This, again, mm -hmm. Frost. And, yeah. and then he goes to find her and bring her home. And he, Cooper feels driven to, to, you know, to go and bring her back uh, and set things right. Um, he, he's probably uh, overzealous in that regard and, and actually, you know, probably, you know, uh, wrong. To, to really to do that, but, um, but he, he does. And so I think you could look at it on that level as simply it's just an alternate reality and Cooper did it and he went to the other one and he went together. Lynch, I think is less interested in, in that. Again, he's interested in the psychology. Right. And, um, and he's interested in the Hindu philosophies. Mm -hmm. And I think for him, uh, Laura was something else. She was, she's portrayed earlier in, in the story as almost um, being godlike herself. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, I think Lynch, you know, saw this at, at, um, at this point, he gets very abstract. It's very hard to, to say what's happening. I'm not going to right. tell you I, this is what happened. Oh, but, that's okay. But, We're just having a conversation. Um, yeah, <laughs> uh, you know, no, I just, I just want, I just say, I don't, I don't profess to know. I don't yeah. say that. I, I, right. I think that, I think that, um, that, on the, on the most general sense for Lynch was Cooper went and he, he found Laura Palmer, and he, he drives her into this, um, sort of this endless night. And he drives her to sort of this place that looks like Twin Peaks, but it's completely dark. And um, it's, I think it's forever bathed in dark. And I think this is the end of what Lynch would call and Hindu mythology would call the dark age. Mm -hmm. And the dark age is, um, is something that's actually referenced in the, in the show. Uh, Janie E., Dougie's wife, says we're living in a dark, dark age. Mm. Uh, and that idea comes from... Um, the Hindu mythology is that there's a cycle of four ages. And when you get to the end of that fourth and final age, which is called the dark age, um, uh, the, the, the cycle can begin again. It can, it can be, it ends and then a new golden age begins. And, and so in a very general sense, it's as if that cycle is ending when Laura screams at the end of the, uh, at the end of the part 18. Um, and, and I think Cooper is somewhat baffled by it all, to be honest with you. He doesn't really realize that he's just sort of um, a, a, a cog in a bigger machine. <laughs> and he, yeah. he thought he was doing something or he, 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 you know, he was just following his programming almost. Um, but something much bigger was happening over his head that he couldn't comprehend. Anyway, that very, very general way of, of looking at, kind of how it ends it's a little more optimistic perhaps than what the ending implies there's a there seems to be a very dark ending but um but you know it's been a dark age it's a dark location it's a dark setting and and my take is that that's the end of it and the dark age has ended um hmm. 
but again, I mean, you know, who knows? Yeah. It could be a dozen other, a dozen other ways. <clears throat> yeah, um, and I know we're kind of wrap or we're getting to that thirty minute mark. Are you able to kind of stay on a little bit longer and talk sure. a little bit more? Okay. Sure. So I guess even before that point, and so when he leaves, and Diane and him are in a car, mm -hmm. and, and they're going, you know, to this place, um, is this still? And even at that point, so they, they cross, they, they, they know they're sort of, they, it seems like they have still this unfinished business to do. Mm -hmm. Diane sort of cautions him, are you sure you want to do this? And, and mm -hmm. you know, and so they, they, they cross sort of this threshold here. And yes. what, and so in your mind, it, you know, you, you think it, it ended and now you're at this point where, okay, they're, they're, they're starting something new and the viewer really has no idea so right. in, in his mind, he's out to find sort of where Laura Palmer is, how he knows he's in, she's in Odessa or what, it's all sort of guessing to the viewer, right? Right. So my, one of my questions I had while, while watching that yeah. was Diane almost, in, in that scene where they're getting a motel, Diane mm -hmm. sees almost like a doppelganger or something mm -hmm. of her looking at her. So what, in your mind, what's going on there? Yeah, that uh, that's a really, really tough uh, um, area to explore. I mean, it's really complicated. Yeah. And, and I, I think, obviously, with Lynch, it is open to many different interpretations. Uh, and yeah. so I guess my best answer for you is um, a, couple, a couple of different things that occurred to me, and I, I'm not sure I've settled on one necessarily, but um, I think Diane is a very fascinating character. And I think she's actually been a presence throughout the story, uh, but off on the margins. And we see elements of Diane. We have, there's a Diane Tulpa, which is sort of a mm. manufactured Diane. And then there's this woman called Nato, who's blind and, and, but seems to guide Cooper at a certain point. And she transforms into this idealized Diane in part 17. Uh, yeah, and then there's a then there's another Diane uh, that that he meets uh, when he comes out of a red room. She's she's standing there. She's she's a much more grounded Diane. She's very serious and and uh, and worried. And I I get the sense that she's been a guiding force for Cooper, and she's sort of trying to help him get to wherever he wants to get. And she's been sort of sacrificing for him, but ultimately she realizes he's going to go do this, and she can't convince him otherwise and so she she abandons him and arguably there's an identity called linda which really complicates things i know but obviously that's an aspect of diane as well and so mm -hmm. um i think diane is sort of the um in part 18 at this point you know this is sort of um it's an epilogue in many ways to what we've watched and diane may be the 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 character who's kind of conveying things to us at this point. Uh, she's mm. finally, she's finally kind of taken, taken over of telling us the story. Um, it's interesting when they do pull up to the motel, Cooper gets out of the car and walks into the office, but we don't follow him. We stay with Diane. We stay right. with her perspective. So it's essentially Diane's story right here. Mm. Um, but you know, what you're asking about part 18, it is extremely, extremely abstract and confusing, you know, as to why, where are they going? How do they know where they're going? It all seems like it's just a number of scenes that are stitched together. Yeah. Um, and, and, and one thing I might offer to someone who's trying to make sense of it is that there's a parallel between 18 and 17. In many respects, part 18 is 
the same story of part 17, only told in a different way. And I mm. say that because Cooper is working his way through part 17, trying to get to Laura Palmer. He finally does. He meets her at night. He walks her by the hand uh, through the woods. She screams and disappears. And mm -hmm. in part 18, he's trying to get to Laura. He finally does. He takes her into the night, eventually holds her by her hand and walks. I think they're holding hands in, at the end of 18 uh, till the very end. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I may be wrong about that, but nevertheless, they're together and he's leading her and she screams and we assume disappears. I mean, the, the two episodes, part 17 and part 18, really parallel one another a lot. And you could yeah. say that part 18 is simply the same story we've already seen told again from a different perspective of Cooper trying to rescue Laura or take Laura home. That's where he says he's taking her in both part 17 and 18. And, mm -hmm. and e each time she, she will not do that. She will not yeah. be brought home. So that, that's one way of looking at the two and seeing uh, you know, some parallels and kind of saying, okay, there's a general sequence of, of story beats happening here. Um, and so 18 could be the same story being told from a different point of view. Yeah. And so one of the, another question I had regarding the, the note left for Cooper when he wakes up, it says, dear Richard, mm -hmm. please don't come to find me anymore. I don't recognize you anymore, Linda. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure. It, it almost seemed to me when I was watching that, that, and maybe he is creating another narrative. This is another dream that's coming mm -hmm. out of this. Um, but, and I heard, I guess he's, you know, I'm not sure. Do you have any optimism that maybe there will be season four or something else following where it was last left? Uh, well, I know I'm, to never say never because I said there never would be a season three. <laughs> uh, yeah, and, and that's because and that's because Lynch said there would never be a season three. And more than one mm -hmm. occasion, he said there will never be more Twin Peaks. So I took him at his word. Yeah. Um, that being said, this Twin Peaks, unlike the other Twin Peaks, um, they had the opportunity to end it the way that, you know, they, they could end it the way they wanted to. The other yeah. times they ended, you know, without, they had plans to continue in, in both the original series. And I think in Fire Walk With Me, there was some thought that they might make another film. This case, I think they realized they could tell a complete story and, and, and had an ending that they were comfortable with. That doesn't mean they might find another idea to explore, but I do think that this is, quite possibly the ending uh yeah. and and that, that lynch and frost are happy enough to walk away from it at this point so mm -hmm. uh that that would be my answer <laughs> to that yeah. question and my, my final question uh for you and, and to share with the listeners uh what what attracts what what do you think what either lynch has offered to you or lynch offers to the world through his art that maybe you don't get from other directors other artists that fascinates you the most uh, wow. That, you know, that's a really good question. Um, no one's really ever asked me that before. Um, you know, I, I could go for the, the surface answers like, oh, you know, he, he's able to convey the sort of dreamy uh, aspect. I, 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 that's, you know, I think lots of different directors can do that their own unique way. And Lynch has just his, his way of conveying that sort of dreamy, surreal aspect. I think, um, yeah, and this is going to sound cliche, but I, I think Lynch 
uh, has a way of drawing me in uh, to, to his, his stories, even in scenes that aren't, there's no action happening at all. There's the use of sound and the use of lighting and the very, very slow use of the camera is mesmerizing. And um, it, it's almost like having a waking dream. <laughs> and mm, yeah. I, I find that mood and that, that just sort of the atmosphere that he creates, um, despite it being often very uh, difficult, um, in some ways uh, it, it's captivating. It, it, it holds mm -hmm. my attention and it, um, it, you know, it, it gives me different ways of thinking about the way I look at the world. And yeah. so uh, I, 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 I'm always fascinated by um, the way that he can convey, uh, just convey a sort of a dreamlike atmosphere. And it's sort of contradicting myself, but that, that there's a power to his visuals combined with his um, sounds that uh, is captivating. Awesome. Perfectly said. John, thank you so much for being on the podcast today and helping try to explain 1718 <laughs> and all of Twin Peaks. It's always awesome. And hopefully uh, Mr. Lynch and Mr. Frost, Frost will uh, create something new for us and we can dive into it again. Thank you so I much. I would for love being that. Here. Well, thank you awesome. very much. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Thank you. Bye.